Christmas Christmas for you. And two of those for me are in Lessons and Carols, hearing Bootsy and David play the Christmas fantasy, and on Christmas Eve, having Lynn sing O Holy Night for us. So thank you, Bootsy, and thank you, Lynn, for adding to the ministry of Christmas. I invite you to join me now in taking your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 14. Let's look at one verse together this evening on Christmas Eve. Now, for Advent season here at, at Bethel ARP, we have been answering the question of, of why Christmas. And I believe all of us, if we were asked that question, would have a good answer. And we're using this occasion to help us dig deeper into the meaning of Christmas by asking why, in a sense, the notes digging deeper into the subject. Because we, as we have seen, that Advent and Christmas is not meant to be the season of shallow puddles of sentimentality sentimentality. Rather, it's a time for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who became incarnate, the God who became incarnate that first Christmas night some 2,000 years ago. So over the past few weeks, as we have been asking why Christmas, we have looked at several answers, one of them being that Jesus came to save sinners. When we think about Christmas, we think that Jesus came to save sinners. We also see that Jesus came to identify with his people. In order to have a savior, we need one who can identify with his people. But he also came to adopt us into his family. And all that points to the other answer we find in our passage this evening, and that is in John 1.14. So let me pray for us, and we'll come together before God's word. So pray with me. Oh Lord, we pray now very simply that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we would both hear and believe, that we would receive and rest upon Christ as he has offered to us in your word. Do this, we pray now, in the name of the one who is incarnate for your people, Jesus Christ. Amen. John 1.14, if you'll join me now, standing for the reading of God's word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. So we are less, technically less than six hours away from the start of Christmas Day. So hopefully, by this point, you're either prepared or close to being prepared for tomorrow morning, for Christmas morning, where many of us will participate in the same scene that will be played out in homes across the world as it is every year on Christmas morning. That is, the families gathering around the Christmas tree and opening up presents to reveal what has been gifted to them for this Christmas. Now, for those of us with young children, this means that although Christmas starts technically in six hours, we'll be woken up in eight hours because young children cannot wait any longer to get up and see what is waiting for them under the Christmas tree. Hopefully, the rest of you all will be able to sleep past daybreak and be able to mosey on to Christmas tree and gift opening. But no matter the time of the day, the same scene will be played out in houses around the world. Families will gather around the tree and they will hand presence to each other and the presence will be open to reveal what has been gifted to them 
Sometimes we know what we're going to be gifted, and other times it's a surprise, but hopefully it will all be appreciated. So as we prepare for that scene and we participate in that scene, may we be reminded of a truth of Christmas that we find that John is teaching us here in the opening prologue to the gospel, that Jesus came to reveal the glory of God. John, in his prologue, takes the Christmas story and he goes back to an eternity previous. He begins by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John goes very deep and very eternal theologically with Christmas, and part of explaining it, he comes to this passage and he says to us that Jesus came to make known, to reveal to us the glory of God. We often hear around Christmas the, the, the saying that Jesus is the greatest gift that, that has ever been given. Well, part of the reason for the greatest gift ever given was so we could know the glory of God. So just as we will open presents tomorrow morning and, and find those gifts uh, revealed to us, we find that Christmas reminds us that Jesus was born, became incarnate to make known the glory of God to his people. And that is part of the greatest gift we could ever ask for. As Christians, this is what we desire. As Christians, this is what we want. We want to know more and better and deeper of the glory of God. So as we ask the questions, we ponder the question of why Christmas, we come to the answer. It is, part of the reason for Christmas is for Jesus to come and reveal the glory of God. Now, if you are a church person, then the glory of God is familiar to you. If you're not a church person, you've probably heard of the glory of God. But rather, if you're a church person or not a church person, we're all probably in the same boat as in, in the same boat if we probably don't know how to define the glory of God. We've heard about it. We come to church. We, we hear about it. We read the Bible stories about it. Uh, if you've been around church, you'll hear people say stuff about the glory of God. But what does it mean? We can talk about the meaning of Christmas and that Jesus came to reveal the glory of God, but what is the glory of God? What is it exactly that Jesus came to reveal? I like how R.C. Sproul begins his definition of this. He says, like many other theological concepts, God's glory is a concept that we have an awareness of without necessarily being able to describe it in all of its fullness. That's a fancy way of just saying, we may, we know, it's a fancy way of saying, we know it when we see it, but we may not be able to define it. We, we know that the glory of God is an integral part of Scripture. From the dawn of creation, God has been making known His glory. We see that in Psalm 19 and Romans 1, that look at the world around us, that the beauty of creation tells us of the glory of God. We remember the Sunday school stories of, of Moses boldly asking God, I want to see your glory. And God saying to Moses, essentially, if I were to show you the fullness of my glory, you will die. So let me pick you up, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to put my hand over you, and I'm going to pass by you. And when I get far enough past you, I will pull my hand away so you can literally see the backside of my glory. And later on, when Moses meets with God, sees God face to face, and comes back down to the Israelites, God's people, the Israelites, ask Moses to cover his face because his face is radiating the glory of God. We remember those Sunday school stories, don't we? 
Remember in the New Testament, Jesus taking some of the disciples up upon the mountain and being transfigured to his heavenly glory. And Peter is stammering and they have trouble describing it to others. We know these stories of God's glory. It's a part of our knowledge. It's a part of our identity and history as well. As we've said before, every good ARP knows what our chief end is. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We're taught that from the moment we're born to ARP Church, aren't we? That the whole our reason why we are created, reason we're born, is for God's glory. So we know the experience, we know the stories. But if you and I, if you and I were asked to define God's glory, could we? What would we say? I think we find that Sproul is true. We may have trouble defining God's glory. We know it and we see it, but we wouldn't know how to define it. So let me share a couple of definitions, hopefully, that will help us this, this evening. The glory of God is His holiness, His significance, the worth of the worship of Him. It's the magnificence, the worth, the loveliness, the grandeur of who God is. Glory is the infinite beauty and greatness of all who God is. That's God's glory. And abroad, there's more we could say about it, but I think it serves as a good starting point for us to see what John teaches and that God's glory was revealed by Jesus at his birth. Think about what that means biblically. When Jesus was born... He revealed the glory of God that was, pre- was present at creation. The glory of God that's seen in all creation. The glory of God that Moses had to be shielded from. The glory of God that the Israelites asked to be shielded from. That glory that the disciples saw on the mountain. Jesus came to reveal, to make known this glory that we've seen throughout all of Scripture. So why Christmas? So Jesus can make known to his people the glory of God. And we see the other gospel accounts tell this in the story, in the Christmas story. That the angels uh, proclaim to the shepherds the glory of the good news of that day. That the star in the sky was a sign that the glory of God had been born. The glory of God is integral to the Christmas story. So as we take a few moments to look at what John teaches on this, we see just a couple of things. One, he says that Jesus is one who is full of grace and truth. That Jesus reveals the glory of God by being one full of grace and truth. And if you've been with us before, as we've looked at this passage, we have explained that this is not talking about Jesus being like a cup and, and God taking it and filling it up with his grace. Rather, it's a statement of who he is. What John is saying here when he says that Jesus is one who is full of grace and truth, really what he's saying is that Jesus is the one who is grace and truth. He didn't have to be filled up with it. He didn't have to be given it. He is the one who is grace and truth. So Jesus reveals the glory of God through his being grace, his being truth. As one pastor explained, Jesus' divinity sparkled more brightly in his love for sinners than the greatest miracle he ever performed. So we 
take Scripture and we look at those miracles of the feeding of the 5,000, the, the, the raising of Lazarus, the turning water into wine, pales in comparison and the grace of His love for His people. Jesus reveals God's glory that He came in grace and with grace because He is grace. So the Christmas story is that He makes known to us the glory of God so that we can know the justifying grace that frees us from our sins. The, the transforming grace that gives us a supernatural new life and new birth in Jesus Christ. The adopting grace that brings us into the family of God and begins to mold us in the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We talk about grace as being what we, what we are given, what we don't deserve. And we have this grace, the glory of God revealed to us. That's the story of Christmas. That Jesus Christ, who is grace, in his grace, makes God's glory known to us. We also see God's glory in that Jesus confirms the faithfulness of the triune God. This ties back to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Genesis 1 and 2 are some of the greatest chapters in all Scripture because there's no sin in Genesis 1 and 2. And then we get to Genesis 3, and sin becomes the topic, the major, one of the major threads of Scripture. But in Genesis 3, we are also promised a Savior. God tells us that he will send forth a woman, uh, send, send forth one born to see the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. From Genesis chapter 3, God has promised a Savior from his people. And, for, and from that point on, even when they are unrepentant and rebellious, God keeps on reminding them that he was going to send them a Savior. And what John reminds us here in John chapter 1 in his prologue is that on that first, on that first Christmas day was born Jesus, the one who has been promised since Genesis chapter 3. That this is the Savior who has come to save his people from their sins. And what makes this so miraculous is that God sent himself to be the Savior of his people. He's not like the president who sends an ambassador or who sends a representative. He, God didn't take somebody and, and train them up in, in, in the gem of God, in the ways of God. No, he sent forth the one who was with him. The word was with God and the word was God. He sent forth the second person to try on God, the one who became incarnate, God with us, the one who fulfilled all the prophecies by coming to save his people from themselves and from hell. And that's one of the most miraculous truths we will ever know is that the one you have rebelled against, the one you have hated, the one you are responsible for putting upon the cross is the one who was born as that little baby in the manger. And there is nothing more glorious than that truth, is there? And God so loved you that while you were killing him with your sin, he was born in the manger. A king born in a stable to save you from your sins. So when we look at Christmas through that lens, that lens of salvation, that lens of grace, we find that the glory of God, the glory of Christmas is meant to change us.
Over the past couple of weeks, our family has read through the book, uh, The Best Christmas Pageant Ever. If you've never read it, go buy it, go to the library, check it out. I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful story, and the author really understands the culture of the church. You read it and you go, I think I might be reading about my church. It's about a Christmas pageant at a church that's essentially taken over by six children who don't go to the church. There are six siblings, and they're the kind of children you don't want at your church, or most people don't want at church. They're misfit hooligans. Uh, all the other children are afraid they're going to get beat up by them. Then the pageant director is afraid she's going to get beat up by them. They're just horrible children. They're not typically who you want to see in front of your church playing Mary or the wise men or shepherds. But you get to the last chapter, and it talks about how when these six unchurched hooligans realized the glory of the Christmas story, they were changed by it. It shook them to their core. And they were so changed by the glory of the Christmas story that it changed the church and it changed the town. The glory of God revealed by Jesus as Christmas, changes us. It's not just a gift we put away after we get bored with it or we've broken it. It's not a gift we just pull out at our own convenience. It's a story of the glory of who God is in our salvation and how we live for Him. The glory of God revealed in Christmas is meant to change us as we behold it, as we love it, as we believe it. The glory that Jesus was born to reveal to us, God's people. But there's another side to this revealed glory of Christmas. And the sanctuary, or I'm sorry, this evening you're sitting in a sanctuary that I believe is one of the most beautiful sanctuaries you'll sit in. A beautiful Christmas tree, we're surrounded in a jungle of poinsettias, there's garland, there's candles, there's wreaths. All of it screams to us that Christmas is a wonderful time of the year. It's a glorious time of the year. But what sits beneath the pulpit isn't a Christmas tree. It isn't a wreath. It isn't a poinsettia. It's the Lord's table. Where the elements of the bread and the wine slash juice reminds us and points us to the baby who was born is the one who is crucified on the cross. The glory of the gospel, the glory of God was revealed in the manger and on the cross. You can't have Christmas without Easter. And you can't have Easter without Christmas. They go hand in hand because it's all one story of God's glory. That born that day in the city of David, Bethlehem, Jesus Christ the Lord, the Savior, God incarnate. The Savior who would save his people by living perfectly for them. He never sinned. He never disobeyed. He never rebelled. He always perfectly loved, always perfectly obeyed, always perfectly followed the Father's will. And the perfection of the Savior had only one path. One straight path that led to Calvary and the cross. 
And as Jesus suffered on the cross and died, the glory of God is revealed when we look upon the sacrifice and say along the centurion, surely this man was the Son of God. Not just for us to look at the baby in the manger and say, what a wonderful, heartwarming story, but for us to look upon the cross and say, the baby who was in the manger is the one who died upon the cross. Glory be to God. This is the Son of God. That story, born in a manger, lived according to God's law, dying as our sacrifice, is the story of God's glory revealed in Jesus Christ. And that's the glory made known to us at Christmas. The glory of God's holiness, His significance, and the worth of worship of Him. That glory that is the magnificence, worth, loveliness, and grandeur of who God is, the infinite beauty and greatness of all who God is. That is Christmas. So why Christmas? It's all for the glory of God. And so as we prepare now to come together to the Lord's table, may we do so keeping in mind the glory of God revealed by Jesus to us in Christmas. As we prepare to come now before the table, we are reminded that the disciples on the night that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper sang psalms together. So it's only fitting that as God's people we would do the same. So as we prepare for communion, let us take our blessings.